Uh, yeah, hey, this is Samuel Webb and Will Stevie. We're doing the five solas of the Reformation, so if you don't know why you're Protestant or why you're not a Catholic, this is a great talk. Um, there is a preface. We want to preface a couple things. So first, it's important to know why you are a Protestant. So we should know what we were protesting against way back when the Reformation happened. So the Catholic Church was doing certain things, and the Reformers didn't like those things. So we're going to go over what exactly they protested against and with. Um, and another reason why this is important, it's if you do not know what you are, then it's easy to become something else. And it's also easy to become something you might not want to be. Um, so keep that in mind through this whole thing. And there are plenty of parables also where Jesus talks about having no grounding. So like a house built on a rock and a house built on a sand. If you don't have any reasons or a good foundation for anything that you believe in, well, what's going to happen is if a storm comes, you're just going to be blown away, right? So it'll be easy to change and you'll just be like changing your mind about everything all the time. Um, so we don't want you to like hear one Catholic argument and be like, yeah, I'm a Catholic now. Um, but yeah, so one other thing on the solas specifically though is some of the solas are not as against the grain as you might think. So with the five solas, you might think, yeah, the Catholic Church doesn't affirm any of this at all, um, and they're against each of those solas completely. Uh, as we'll explain, some of that, some of the solas, the Catholic Church actually could affirm a lot of, mm -hmm. and and we'll we'll also go over that. So don't just automatically think like, oh, sola sola fide. Get the Catholic Church doesn't believe in that at all and can't affirm anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anything else you want to say? I think that's it. All right. We're going to quick pray, and then we will get into the topics. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for having this time together to talk about your word and meet together as a community and really just sharpen each other. So we ask that you work in people's hearts and minds. Let this change people's desires to holy and righteous desires and also change their ideas to mm -hmm. conform to you and your truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sola gratia, that's the first one. So we're going to be using these Latin phrases. If you have no idea what that means, it just means by grace alone. All right. So this one is grace. That's the first sola of the Reformation. And we're going to start with a quote by St. Augustine. There's a picture of him over there. Charles um, Spurgeon. Uh, oh, wait, yeah, by Charles Spurgeon. But we have a picture of St. Augustine because he's amazing. Okay. <laughs> and he has a really good beard as well. I'm actually Indeed. jealous of his beard. Um, but here's the quote by Charles Spurgeon, not St. Augustine. Uh, he says, I delight to preach this blessed truth, salvation of God, from first to last, the Alpha and the Omega. But when I come to preach damnation, I say damnation of man, not of God. And if you perish at your own hands, must your blood be required. Mm -hmm. So um, the big idea we're getting at here is grace, or everything we get is a gift, mm -hmm. something we don't deserve or earn. All right. So just as a sort of description of what we mean by grace alone, this is probably one of the most familiar ones, but that salvation is an unearned gift. We can't do anything to merit our salvation or to earn our salvation. We can't do anything to move towards God without him first empowering us to do so. So salvation is a work of God. It's based on the work of God, not on the work of man. So the only thing that will count before God is the perfect work of God on the cross. And so salvation is holy of grace and not of our merit in any way. We're going to be going over some biblical evidence for each of these solas. So the reason why we believe in sola gratia is there, there's a lot of verses, but we just chose three. First one is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is, a, uh, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So it's not something we do. It's, it's no action on our part or no, we could even say merit on, on, on our parts, but it is solely from God, only from God. He is the source. Mm -hmm. um, another verse is Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ 
Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then we have one more to show as an example, which is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So those, those last two verses, they're really straightforward, as in, like, they actually use the word gift. It is a gift from God. And so um, it's pretty straightforward why we believe in this sola based on scripture. Yeah, and so just as a historical overview, we'll do a little bit of a history on each of the five points. Um, so for this one, we'd say that basically every Orthodox Christian group wants to affirm sola gratia, to, at least to some extent. So the, um, nobody wants to say that salvation is like half God, half man. Most, most Christian groups would not say that in their official teachings. So Roman Catholics would not say that. They'll say that salvation is holy of grace. Eastern Orthodox Christians would say the same thing. All Protestants would say the same thing, that salvation is holy by God's grace. That's what we'd say. Um, now, we can argue and, and dispute about who's able to say that the most faithfully, okay? And what's the most scriptural way to talk about that? But we should at least recognize that everybody wants to say that, at least. So a Catholic would agree with that statement as much as a Protestant would. Um, but, of course, in the details, there's going to be disagreements. We would say first that Augustine is kind of the ma big major figure on this point that we want to bring up first. Um, his dispute with the Pelagians, we had talks about this a while ago. Uh, we talked about grace and free will. So that gives a much more detailed historical overview. But Augustine had this big dispute um, with the Pelagians who were basically saying that salvation was something that man could accomplish. Basically, Jesus came to set a good example for us, and then we are able, God has given us enough freedom and enough, um, we, can, we have enough inherent righteousness within us to live up to that standard, and we're saved to the extent that we live, live up to that standard. And so Augustine was like, oh my gosh, that's not what Scripture's saying at all. We, anything good that we do is first empowered by God. And so he pushes back with that, a heavy dose of grace in salvation, that salvation is wholly by God's grace and not by our own strength. I'd say over time, um, this is a very reductionistic, but over time, a lot of things start to creep into the church's practice that Protestants would say um, obscure the gospel to a certain degree, that, that muddied the sheer graciousness of salvation. Um, and so we could point to things like indulgences or the system of, of purgatory and, and the afterlife that developed, the treasury of merit that developed. We can talk about those things a little bit more later. But basically, there were different systems within the church, at that, especially the Western church at the time, that I think detracted a bit from the, the sheer graciousness of the gospel and made salvation... Um, somewhat transactional. So it, it became something like, uh, I do a little bit of this, and I get a little bit of this in return. And it was sort of systematic and transactional. And so the reformers were reacting to some pretty egregious practices at the time, um, where salvation did seem sort of this give and take sort of thing, which was not what they saw in scripture. And so very brief historical overview, but we saw that there's some things that start to creep in, and the Protestants are basically saying, let's return to the purity of the early church. Uh, let's not reinvent the church, but let's kind of scrub off some of the barnacles, so to speak, at the bottom of the boat. There's some things that have developed over time. We need to scrub some of those things off and return back the purity of the early church was the argument of the Reformation here. <clears throat> Next one is sola fide. That just means um, through faith alone. All right, so this one is faith. We are focusing on that. Uh, we have a John Calvin quote for this one, because John Calvin is big in the Reformation, and pretty much when you think of like through faith alone, you might go straight to John Calvin. Mm -hmm. But here we go. He says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone, just at it as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. Mm -hmm. So he says that. And then there is one other quote that we found, which was like really intense that I actually liked this by John Murray. And he says, faith alone justifies, but a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of grace. So we're going to clarify like what faith is and what it entails mm -hmm. and kind of everything about it. Yeah, so... The one like clearest description of faith that we do get in Scripture is, is Hebrews 11.1, which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So that's maybe the clearest definition we get. But I would say taking like the scriptural data as a whole, 
um, and specifically how Paul uses the term faith, and what we typically mean by justified by faith alone is using what Paul uses a ton, in Romans and Galatians especially, is uh, best translated as trust. So to think about it as a, as a trusting in the work of God as opposed to trusting in yourself, putting your trust in him. So saving faith is a turning from our previous ways and trusting in the work of Christ to save us. So biblical faith and repentance, we would say, go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. A, a turning from sin necessarily means you're turning towards Christ, or put it the other way around. Turning towards Christ necessarily means you're turning away from previous ways of life. And so that's kind of how um, the reformers would think about faith, is, is, a, is a trust. A good example of this would be like Luke 18, the tax collector in Luke 18, where he sees Jesus, and then by virtue of that, he sees himself and goes, he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that contrition is a necessary element, we would say. We, we can't just believe the right statement or something like that, but there is an actual wholehearted yielding trust in God is, is what we were talking about when we say faith alone. Um, and this is something that God works in us, right? This isn't just something we do on our own strength, but this is something that God is working in a person um, through the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit. So it is only by his strength that we can even believe or exercise any sort of saving faith or do anything good. We also say that good works are necessary, not for salvation, but from salvation. So I think Grace, uh, this fall in their men's and women's group are doing a study on real faith and real works, which I think would be really, really cool to kind of clarify um, the graciousness of justification, but also the necessity of walking out salvation in the Christian life. So the way I like to think about it is faith is doing good works before we're even asked to. Kind of think about that statement for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, so it's never something that, uh, I don't think the Holy Spirit will gift a faith that will not produce good works, right? So if it's a work of God, and this is something God works in a person, it will necessarily include moral transformation, is the idea. So, in Galatians 5, 6, it says that we confess with Paul that no other, this is a quote from John Calvin, quoting Galatians 5, 6, we confess with Paul that no other faith justifies but a faith working through love. So a faith that is working through love is the only thing that counts before God, is what Galatians 5, 6 says. So this faith works itself out in virtue. Um, real quick, we're going to talk about James 2 um, and the controversy of James 2 and then what Paul and Paul is talking about in Romans and Galatians. So, because often this is a kind of a controversial point for Protestants and Catholics. What is, talking, what is it talking about in James 2 when it says that we're justified by works? I would argue that, and I think um, the Reformers would argue, that the terms faith and the terms justification are being used in slightly different senses in Paul and in James. So when Paul is saying that we're justified by faith apart from works, he is using the term faith in the way that I've described it, in the sense of a, of a, a contrite spirit giving their trust in God, whereas James is talking about faith in a sense of intellectual assent only. So that's something that the demons are doing. The demons believe and they shudder, it says. So that, that faith that is talked about in James 2, that faith alone is one that is simply the demons having good theology. The, the demons are simply believing the right thing. That in of itself is not a living faith. That's not a faith that saves. I would say that when Paul's talking about faith being our justification, he's speaking of it in terms of a, of a trusting in God's work, a forsaking of our old ways and turning to God. Also, the term justification, I think, is used in a slightly different way. The term justification can be translated in a number of different ways, and it has kind of a broad meaning. When James is talking about justification, I would say that he is more talking about how we can tell who a true Christian is. And every Protestant agrees that how you tell it, who a true Christian is is not by me somehow knowing exactly what's in a person's heart, but I see the fruit of their life, right? So there's no problem with, with James 2 and the Protestant doctrine of faith alone. They actually, I think, work in concert together. I think they work very well together when understood properly. Um, so we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And there should be no tension there. Um, then we'll move right into Romans 4 which is a very significant chapter for the Protestant position, I would say. Paul gives this, the whole chapter, really. He gives a long discourse on to how we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. I'll read uh, verse 4 and 5 real quick. It says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's a pretty clear statement there. And the whole chapter really 
details the argument well. But the most significant aspect of this chapter is Paul's use of David and Paul's use of Abraham as the two examples of being justified by faith alone. Both of these men are examples of God justifying the ungodly. So these were men that were not in a super righteous moral state, yet they were justified because they threw themselves upon the mercy of God in faith and they trusted in God. That's the really significant element of um, those two men being the examples in Romans 4. So they're, they're examples of God justifying people who didn't deserve it, who were ungodly men who were justified in that time because they trusted in God. Um, so the key is faith, trusting in God and his promises. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so for the other two biblical evidences for sola fide, um, one is Galatians 2.16. So nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works... Um, of the law shall no flesh be justified. So mm-hmm. we we cannot justify ourselves through our works. We are justified through the works of Christ, though, and our faith in the works of Christ. Um, so that so that would be one piece of biblical evidence. Another one would be Philippians three seven through nine. Mm-hmm. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, Mm -hmm. but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So it's always and constantly saying through faith or because of faith in Christ, that's the reason we are saved. So that's where it really hinges upon. So um, one thing I do want to clarify before we get into the historical overview is with faith, the Catholic Church and um, Protestants, there has been some confusion because a lot of the time the Catholic Church would say um, faith is one thing and the Protestants would say it's another. So Catholics believed in something like faith, hope, and love, those theological virtues. So when they said faith, they had a very specific meaning But a lot of times when the Protestants or the Reformers would say faith, they actually meant faith, hope, and love at Mm. the same time. So there's been a lot of confusion with that. And um, some people might push back on on the love part, but we would just cite Galatians 5, 6, which is faith works through love. So there are those elements in real saving faith. And another difference between the Catholic system and uh, the Reformers was how we really view justification. So infusion versus imputation. So like Catholics would say we are infused with righteousness and we're actually to, to a degree like made good, but we would say we're imputed with righteousness as in it's like a legal declaration. We get Christ's righteousness. We aren't actually made into like super good people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and with this confusion, something I can point out in the culture right now is a lot of this confusion has actually produced what we call like carnal Christians. So the Christians that are like, oh, I believe, so I can just do whatever I want. So when when they hear like faith alone, a lot of people think like, oh, I just need to like believe in him. It doesn't matter my my works. Sure. Um, so to, to a degree, we can uh, blame modern or more recent Christians for, for that confusion. Mm-hmm. But uh, just really quick, wanted to clear that up. Yeah, at the same time, Paul gets this charge in the book of Romans 2. He gets the charge of, okay, well, if God is so gracious with us, then we should just do whatever we want and sin. <laughs> so there's an argument you could make of uh, you're truly not preaching the gospel in its full graciousness unless you're being charged with what we call antinomianism or being against the law. So Paul gets this charge of I can do whatever I want. I, I might as well just sin, sin away so grace may abound. And Paul says, well, that's clearly not the right response. But you... You could make the argument that flirting with that actually gets the gospel right because Paul gets that same charge. So there's a balance there to strike for sure. Mm-hmm. But to go into a little bit of history, um, some important important points to note is that the early church and all the way through up to the Reformation are not having the exact same debates that are happening in the Reformation. And so they're not going to have exactly the tight uh, answers that we'd like them to have. And, exact, and they're not using the exact same language that the Reformers are using and then the the counter-reformation in the Catholic Church. So there are different debates going on. So to go back and try to like mush them into our debates that we're having is sometimes misrepresenting their ideas. 
And also, they are often not, like we talked about, not operating under the same assumption about what justification and what faith meant. There's a lot of different um, thoughts on that. And so for a long time throughout the church, justification, it could mean either you're declared righteous, like the Protestants think of it, but also there's a very strong stream coming from Augustine and onward of people viewing justification as including the moral transformation in a believer's life. So there wasn't a... There wasn't a um, a separation between justification and sanctification, the way that we talk about it today in Protestantism. That distinction was a bit blurred for a long time in the church, I would say, which, which caused a lot of people saying things like, yeah, well, good works are necessary. And then the Protestants were like, yeah, we agree with that, but we need to get all those things in the right places, otherwise we're going to mess up the gospel, or at least muddy the gospel. So that being said, I don't think Martin Luther invented the doctrine of sola fide, uh, I don't think that the church got things wrong for 1,500 years, and then he came and resurrected a dead church. I don't think that is a good way to characterize church history. Um, I think you can find certainly all aspects and very clear um, statements of sola fide um, pretty clearly through church history, but especially in the early church. I think you can find uh, really clear statements of this. So one example that I'm going to bring up is John Chrysostom, who is a theologian, um, is actually the bishop of Jerusalem, I believe, in like the third and fourth century. Didn't prepare that. I'm pretty sure those are the right dates. <laughs> but anyway, just going to give a couple quotes from him. And when just providing quotes, it's it's easy to just have somebody reply and say, you're, you're quote mining, you're taking quotes out of context and that sort of thing. I would urge you to go and read his sermons on Romans, his sermons on Ephesians, where he talks about these passages. And it is clear that he is talking about it in this sense. So just a couple quotes. This is uh, John Chrysostom speaking from Ephesians. He says, faith's workings themselves are a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. What then is Paul saying? Not that God has forbidden works, but that he has forbidden us to be justified by works. No one, Paul says, is justified by works, precisely in order that the grace and benevolence of God may become apparent. Okay, so that's a pretty clear statement. Next, when he's talking about Romans, he says, A righteousness not thine own, but that of God. For you do not achieve it by toilings and labors, but you receive it by a gift from above, contributing one thing only from your own store, believing. All right, that's basically how a Protestant would talk about justification and faith. One more real quick. It says, for when a, uh, this is talking about, um, oftentimes Catholics will be able to fit some of these quotes in their system, although a little bit unnaturally. But I would say, like this last one is an even better example of how it doesn't really work with their system of conflating justification and sanctification together. For when, when a man is once a believer, he is straightway justified. But since after this grace, whereby we were justified, there is need also of a life suited to it, let us show an earnestness worthy of the gift we have received. So, you believe, you're justified. <laughs> That's like not including the moral transformation of the believer. He's saying God declares someone righteous. He makes someone righteous. So it's a very clear, I think, Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone there. Um, and there's others we could point to, but he's just a very significant figure that I feel like is kind of on the Protestant side of things in that regard. <clears throat> so, it can get a lot more complicated than that, but, yeah, I think that this is not a new doctrine that Martin Luther just invents or anything like that, and we can actually go back to the church and find lots of disagreement with the Protestant position, but also lots of agreement. Mm -hmm. and we can say, okay, which one's the most biblical? So, yeah. So the question, was the church wrong? Early church, not so much, but things got worse as time moved forward, sure. we could say. All right, um, but let's go to the next one, which is sola scriptura. So um, this is really the idea that scripture is the infallible authority for the Christian. Um, so the only thing that cannot make an error. All right, but we have a quote to start, Francis Turretin. Um, a reformed scholastic thinker. That's a picture of him. He's pretty awesome. Um, but here's, here's the quote. It, the scriptures, can make the man or minister of God perfect in every good work. And what is sufficient for the shepherd must also be so for the sheep. So, like in this quote, it's, it's pretty much saying, if scripture is sufficient, why would we need something else? Mm -hmm. And before we even get into like biblical evidence or... Um, before Will really starts describing it, this um, this isn't like necessarily one of the solas that's explicitly stated in Scripture, but it's something we get from the idea of Scripture. Mm -hmm. 
and just had a lapse of judgment. John Chrysostom was the Bishop of Constantinople, not Jerusalem. So I'll go back to my previous statement. Okay, so it's critical that we define this doctrine properly. I think both Catholics and Protestants don't get this doctrine right all the time. So uh, Sola Scriptura, in the eyes of the people who originally formulated the doctrine, is that Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. It's the only infallible authority. Not the only authority, but the only infallible authority. So it does not mean that Scripture contains all knowledge. That'd be very silly. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't contain how to fix your car, right? So it's not exhaustive in all knowledge, but we would say that it speaks to all areas of life. We would say that. Um, we would say, though, is that it's the only infallible authority. So we can go back and look to history and look to see how the church has interpreted something for the last 2,000 years to inform how we view a certain text. Like, I view my pastor right now as an authority in my life, right? He's the shepherd of my church. I view him, I view him as an authority. I also view the church, broadly speaking, as authoritative in some sense. Now, they are always, in principle, reformable by the scriptures. That's the key thing, is that in principle, any writing of a church father, any council, any creed, anything like that, any sermon that my pastor gives is always testable and in principle reformable by scripture. That's the claim that Protestants are making with sola scriptura. I actually think that we should look more into church history to actually learn kind of the roots of our faith and how Christians have viewed text for the last 2,000 years. I think it's somewhat arrogant of us to just think that um, I'm the first person that's going to look at John 3 and interpret what it means or, or whatever. Um, when it's like, no, there's been guys that studied that for like their entire lives and wrote a lot about it. Um, so it's important that we go and look back at the history of the church as well. It's authoritative, but not an infallible authority. So very often I hear Protestants say a statement like, the Bible is my only authority. Now, I wouldn't say that statement because it's a little unclear. I would say it's the only infallible authority. It's the only thing that possesses the status of being breathed out by God. That's it. So it's the only infallible authority. It's the only thing that cannot be um, normed by anything else or reformed by anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we define that properly. Um, and we would say, as Samuel cited in 2 Timothy 3.16, did you already read that? No, I did not. Okay. Not yet. We'll you'll, get to it, though. You'll read it. But basically, the scriptures contain all that is necessary to believe for salvation. Uh, and, and the doctrines necessary for salvation are clear from scripture. Um, that, that the average person could see it, like could see that and um, attain the necessary knowledge that is required to be saved, mm -hmm. that that's clear in Scripture, that nothing else is required in terms of, in terms of other sources there. Mm -hmm. Now, for, for other sources, though, the question is, like, can we use other sources? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say, to a degree, yes, we could use other sources. So, like, um, stories or myths, they, they could point people to the truth. Or they, they have in the past. So again, C.S. Lewis, I bring him up all the time, but that's how he got pointed to Christ and the truth was through that. Or um, we could consult uh, people who have thought about this stuff for years, like Will was saying, now we, we should not say that those contain no errors. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to distinguish between is you, you've heard the word inerrant and the word infallible both, but people get them confused a lot and actually use them synonymously. So inerrant means there are no errors in that thing so we would say the bible is inerrant and even we would say just the original ones contain no errors all the copies after that it could be very easily when someone was copying it down they missed a letter right so that's an error right there um so only that original one where those authors were inspired by the holy spirit were inerrant and contained completely no errors but again translations or people that copied it down might have missed a letter or something but infallible would mean it is unable to make an error so when god did inspire these people we would hold that it was infallible as in god was unable to make an error and that holy word of god um it was it was just an impossible idea mm -hmm. uh, because god is perfect he can only tell the truth so when he did that it was also perfect okay mm -hmm. um so that's one thing we get. And so we can start getting into the biblical evidence for that. And the first one will be 2 Timothy 2, 3.16, which is all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so the, the big part right there is inspired by God. That has the level of 
divinity right there. And so that should just by its nature have more importance than something a scholastic author wrote a couple hundred years ago, mm-hmm. right? Just by its nature. Yeah. Okay, uh, Matthew 24:35 is the next one. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That's another um, rising to the level of divinity saying, hey, this stuff I told you, this truth, it will, it will not change, it will not pass away, it will not die, it will not change. Um, this is here forever, and it's here to stay. And then we have one other thing. We would actually point to Jesus and all the times he said, have you not read or something like that. So we give a couple examples, but we're actually just going to read one. It'll be Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this, co- uh, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And we don't want to make a point on marriage here. We want to make the point of Jesus pointing to scripture all the time to reform and change people. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees or the lawyers or uh, whoever were challenging him, he would be like, come on, have you not read this already? This is, this is how it is. This is the truth. Um, so just the fact that Jesus is always pointing to the scriptures as the standard for us to judge our beliefs against, that, that says something. Yeah. And again, just a couple flashpoints throughout history to talk about this here. The first thing I have down is Athanasius and Nicaea. What I mean by this is that the way that the early church argued from scripture is very significant. They were treating that, especially Athanasius when he's arguing for the deity of Christ, he is treating scripture as his ultimate authority. And I believe he was arguing with this assumption where I think many of the people at the, uh, at the time were actually appealing to majority of the people around him who were Arians. And, and he was arguing against that and saying, no, that's not, you, the majority of bishops are wrong here. Scripture is saying this. And so I think that's significant that the authoritative place that scripture had in the early church. I would make the point, I think Augustine, as clearly as you can, affirms Sola Scriptura. Who's, he's the most significant theologian in church history. And I would say that he affirms Sola Scriptura could not have been more clear about it. So I will read a quote here. I have, he's writing to Jerome, who's another bishop at the time. He says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. As to all other writings, in reading them, however great the superiority of the authors to myself in sanctity and learning, I do not accept their teaching as true on the mere ground of the opinion being held by them, but only because they have succeeded in convincing my judgment of its truth, either by means of these canonical writings themselves or by arguments addressed to my reason. Another one, he says, among the things that are plainly laid down in scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith in the manner of life. So you could spend like, three weeks going through Augustine's writings and trying to dis- like discern exactly what he believed about scripture and tradition and all these different things. It's a big debate, but I would say he is on the side of the reformers in terms of his view of scripture being the only infallible authority. Um, so I find that to be very significant. Um, we do see, though, that the Protestant position is that the church is a necessary witness to the scripture. So the church does play an important function and role in scripture, we would, we would consider it, think of uh, John the Baptist heralding the word of God, as in Jesus in the flesh, when he comes and says, this is the Lamb of God. Think of the church as John the Baptist. As, so it's necessary for John the Baptist to proclaim the word of God and to say, that's what the word of God is, right there, it's right there, and telling the world about it. But the infallible divine authority of Jesus does not rest on the infallibility of John the Baptist. So that's kind of how we see the relationship between the church and the scriptures. We see them as a necessary herald and proclaimer of the word of God, but the authority of the scriptures do not rest on the authority of the church, is the Protestant claim. So I think that's a good way to think about it. And two last things real quick, actually examples from scripture that I think kind of get at this idea. Um, Think of the Bereans in Acts 17. They're ones who, even though Paul was speaking to them directly, they were checking what he was saying based off the scriptures. So he was measuring, uh, they were basically checking everything Paul said and said, is, does, this line up about, does this line up with things that we've already read here in the scriptures? So as Protestants, we should be good Bereans in the sense of checking everything that we hear 
by what the Word of God says. Um, another example is I kind of see a, um, a little bit of a microcosm of what the Reformation was in the Old Testament. We see constantly that Israel has this tendency to fall into idolatry, to stray from the Word of God and then fall into idolatry. And I would say that the Reformation in a lot of ways was similar to that. Um, one example is in uh, King Josiah in Kings. He recovers the lost scrolls of the, old te- of the Torah, and then he has all of Israel kind of return to what the Torah had said because there had been kind of a long darkness of no scriptures, at least not being faithful to scripture. And so when King Josiah recovers the scriptures, Israel returns back to what the word of God was saying. And so the Reformation kind of picks up that story a lot and is like, that's kind of what's happening right now. And so they have the slogan, post-tenebrous lux, which means after darkness light. And they kind of viewed that as a, when we return to the word of God, we come back to the light, is sort of the idea there. That's like my favorite phrase, by the way. It's a good one. Post-tenebrous lux. It's It's amazing. All right. Next one is solus Christus, so through Christ alone. So we have a quote here by Johann Gerhard. Also an amazing picture, great beard. Great neck accessory as well. If I had to dress up like some old person a really long time ago, it'd be him. Um, But the quote for solus Christus is, Because of your love, Lord Jesus, only Redeemer and Mediator, I will sing psalms of praise to you for eternity. So really the thing we're getting at is Christ is the only mediator for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and just a simple description. This won't take as long as my other, <laughs> as the other ones. Um, God requires a perfect righteousness, and the only righteousness that has ever been attained or that counts as perfect before God is the perfect life and death of Christ, the perfect mm-hmm. obedience of Christ to the law, and his perfect atoning death. That is the only, you being clothed in his righteousness is the only thing that will turn away the wrath of God from you. So Christ is the only Savior. He's the only mediator. This is all very clear and obvious to us today as modern evangelicals. We, that, there's no problem with this. But there was a reason why that this was a slogan of the Reformation, was because that doctrine had become a little bit muddy, I would say. Mm-hmm. So we'll go into some biblical data. Yeah, biblical data. First one, John 14, 6. Everyone should know this one. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Super simple, uh, probably overused, but it's... Gets the point. Uh, so, um, one thing we can actually see in culture today is so many people like pluralism, or you can choose any path you want and still be saved. The the one thing I would like respond to that with, or point out with them, is whoever they bring up or whatever religion they bring up, say, did this person actually solve the problem? So in Buddhism, say, does Buddha's findings does it actually solve the problem? of maybe like evil or even just all of all of reality's problems does it if not then it can't be that way mm-hmm. all right so the only reason we would say christ is the only way is because he's the only one that fixed the problem mm-hmm. right and and we would point to that he's the only one that actually did something about it and was able to do something about it and completed it right um so so that would be a, a way to respond but let's move on to the next one which is 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. Uh, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. So, Jesus is the only mediator. There's only, it's it's very clear, one person, or Jesus, between us, kind of conducting that relationship. Mm -hmm. Next one is, Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this, again, would really highlight the fact that Jesus was the only one that actually solved our problems. Um, He was the only one that actually fixed everything. Um, Mm -hmm. Next one, 1 Peter 2, 24-25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By whose wounds you have been healed, for you were like strange sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Yeah. So this historical overview is, again, it's a brief sketch, and it's going to be very similar to some of the same things I've already said, but similar to what we talked about with with grace alone. This is kind of something we see as 
we think the early church got this right. And then slowly over time into the medieval period, there are doctrines that were at, at the time somewhat innocent. And then they start to over time take the gospel and muddy it a little bit um, to the point in the medieval period where it's pretty egregious what's going on. And the reformers are acting with, I think, proper vitriol to what's happening um, in terms of the system that had developed about around salvation. Um, and so the reason that there was a necessary reaction of Christ alone is because there really was this um, sense at the medieval at the medieval period of um, that Christ was a difficult figure to go to, that Jesus was a difficult, um, a wrathful judge that was kind of mean and difficult to go to. And so there are maybe other figures that are easier to go, go to in terms of intercession, help, mediation. And you really do see this in the medieval period of, of people um, going to Mary or the saints, people that they find as more relatable figures, gentler, kinder figures, and going to them for prayer, intercession, help, um, and, and instead of Christ, because Christ is viewed as more of a wrathful judge. And that can bring up sort of an emotional reaction, both on the sides of Protestants and Catholics, because that's, that's an emotional thing to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't want to label everybody that disagrees with us as evil, um, or assume that all of the most egregious practices in church history is an exact representation of what every single Roman Catholic believes today. That's also not fair. Mm-hmm. But we need to point out, like, that's what was the response of the Reformation. That's what the context was. It was it was pretty brutal. And so we see clearly the scripture saying that Christ is more merciful than Mary was. He's, he's more merciful than she ever could be. He's God. And God was not only, yes, he is our wrathful judge against sin and wickedness, but he's also the most merciful being of all time. Christ is the most merciful. He's the most compassionate savior to the truly humbled heart. And so we can draw confidently to the throne of grace through Christ. We don't need to go through someone else. Um, he is the one mediator between God and man. And so we've got to be balanced here about being charitable, not misrepresenting, um, but at the same time pointing out there really was some differences there, and there really was a reason for them to react with Christ alone. So trying to strike that balance without making anyone too angry. No, there's no Catholics here, but... <laughs> If a Catholic ever watches this online. Yeah. Uh, but then, like, I do want to make a personal statement, though, with Catholicism. So I have like looked into Catholicism before just to see the ideas and everything. And I will say, there are some areas where they are convincing, right? And the church does have like some authority. It's For, for a very long time, the church was Catholic. And so like I, I looked into it, and I was saying, and I was seeing, like, oh, hey, this, this might actually work. They had smart people. They, it wasn't like they had dumb people for... Uh, like over a thousand years. Um, no, it wasn't like that. But the one thing that always like got me was Mary and the saints, where uh, I, I would not, I like, I never saw that in scripture. So this was probably one of the biggest solas um, of the Reformation that really, like, a hundred percent keeps me Protestant. It has like a firm grasp on me. It's like when when you go to the ground level of the experience of like praying to Mary and the saints, it just feels wrong mm. to me, right? So that's what I would say for Solus Christus. Spoken like a Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next one. Soli Deo Gloria. So right. for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. So a quote here is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, Reform, the Great Reformed Confession. It's the first in the catechism, basically the question and answer um, portion of the Westminster, and it's saying, what is, the, what is the purpose of man's existence, basically? And it's saying, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God's the whole reason for the story. We are not the main character in the story, but God is the main reason for why anything exists, and we exist for his glory alone. Yeah, and so for, for that quote, it uses the word end, and the word end just means like purpose. What is our purpose? Our, our purpose is to glorify God. Now, um, I'm going to bring up like a story from C.S. Lewis. So for his conversion, when he was atheist, he actually said and kind of explained why he didn't believe in God, kind of like Shakespeare and Hamlet. He said, how could Hamlet ever know Shakespeare? So like if he, it sounded like if he did believe, he would be a deist. So someone who believed in God, but God was like too far removed to even know about. Right. So that's what he said. But then later in his life, he, he came to the conclusion that, 
hey, Hamlet could actually know Shakespeare if Shakespeare decided to write himself into the story, right? And so with that second point in description, that's what we would highlight right there. A lot of times we think we're the main story and God is the author, but actually God is the author and God wrote himself into the story as the main character for us to know. So he's the author and the main character right there. Um, so that's just, that's a, I thought it was a cool way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Biblical evidence. So biblical evidence for Soli Deo Gloria is first one, Romans 11:36. for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for analyzing this verse, it uses certain words like for, uh, from him. Like for from him, everything comes from him, through him, he's like the instrument, and to him, um, he is the end or purpose of all things. And one good way to look at it is actually through like Greek thought. Now you might think like, oh, Greeks, they're pagans, right? But the fact of the matter is, is the church history has shown a lot of people to use their tools. And one of their tools was the causes. And those causes were... Uh, I'll explain them in simple terms, but one of them was the material cause, so like what everything is made of. And so we would say all things that are made come from him, right? So Jesus. Then the formal causes and like what things are, so God designed everything in what, what it is. Then the efficient cause, like who actually did it? God did it. Hmm. The final cause, which is the purpose. So he is the reason why we are here to glorify him. Um, And then the last one is actually the instrumental cause. So like what did someone use to accomplish something? And we would actually say God used Jesus to accomplish our salvation. So when we're thinking about this, we could say the instrument or the instrumental cause to our salvation is actually Jesus Christ. Um, He was how God saved us. Any way that humans can possibly conceive of causation Mm -hmm. or or explanation, God is the where the buck stops. Yeah. In every single conceivable way is the cause. Um, so then we'll look at Ephesians 1 a little bit. And I haven't decided, and I still haven't decided yet how much I want to read of it. <laughs> it's a great passage. I'll read 3 through 14. Uh, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I'll stop there. Um, We're supposed to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture, so we're doing that today. Um, but just this clear plan of this whole plan of creation, the reason for our existence, the reason for our salvation is all according to God's will and according to his purposes of basically glory, glorification of the Trinity. And so that is why we exist. And that is our final goal and end. Mm-hmm. So to the glory of God alone. Yeah. Last, uh, last piece of biblical evidence, though, is 1 Corinthians 15:28. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Mm -hmm. him, that God may be all in all. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, with those biblical evidences, it's very clear how we get soli deo gloria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no no one really wants to disagree with this throughout church history. Um, Any, you know, major influential theologian would say that this is why we exist. We exist for the glory of God alone, both Protestants and Catholics would agree with that statement. I would say every church today that is Orthodox at all would agree with the statement that we exist for the glory of God alone. And so this one's a pretty uncontroversial, but I would say it was clarified by the Reformers in, in a good way. Um, like, what, okay, let's really get back to what's the main point of all this stuff here. It's the glory of God alone. And so pretty unanimous agreement, but I would say clarified by the Reformers. Now, a little application. Um, there's tons of information and stuff. Um, and maybe look and listen back on this to get some of it, but um, it's helpful to know our roots as Protestants, and you might not self-identify as a Protestant or even know what the word means, and that's all fine, Um, but we would say, I I would encourage you all, and it has been extremely enriching for my faith, 
to sort of look back into the history of the church to see why we believe what we believe when, you know, someone of grace occasionally mentions like a sola of the Reformation and you're like, what's that? It's good to know some of the background of what that even is. Um, it's good to know why we trust so much in the scriptures. Um, it's good to know why Christ alone. It's good to know these things. So I would say it's good to know your roots and to start to learn some of the history of the church. I also think that this is helpful for engaging in what I'd call healthy ecumenism. So ecumenism is just a word that means um, basically seeking church unity, um, seeking um, as much as we can uh, unity within the church. Um, I think that's a good thing. It doesn't mean compromising the truth. It doesn't mean compromising on our convictions, but it does mean, okay, well, we're at a place where we're not bombing each other anymore as Protestants and Catholics, and we're not killing each other and burning each other at the stake, which I think is a good thing. So even if we disagree about doctrine, how can we move things forward and actually pursue what Jesus talks about in John 17 of, I pray that they are all one as we are one, right? So I think lots of Protestants and lots of Catholics don't have a very um, strong drive to pursue church unity. They kind of just see the other as evil, which is sinful. <laughs> they just see the other as morally evil in all ways, and they don't want to pursue any sort of unity at all. So I think we should we should know our stuff so that we can help have healthy dialogue with other people who disagree with us. I also think that this grid of the five, five solas is a pretty good summary of the faith. It's, it's, it's not perfect, and any sort of summarization is going to miss a lot of details, but I do think it's sort of a guide for the Christian faith and for um, viewing scripture as our ultimate guide and all those sorts of things. So I think it's important to discuss, which is why we just talked about it for like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's about um, it. We are going to end with a prayer and then get into Q&A. All right. Um, dear Heavenly Lord, you are God of justice and mercy. We come in deepest gratitude with all the gifts of grace. You provide for the lives of your children. We appreciate your mercy and the ability to be justified through faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We ask that you give us love for you, uh, for your word, and always seek to ground ourselves in it. We are indebted to you and your son for saving sinners like us, and we further seek to only glorify you, and we ask that you let all pride and self-absorption fade away into dust so that you are the only one that receives credit. May all we do be to the praise of your glory, not our own. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right.